0: Hi, everyone. We welcome you today to the webinar sponsored by J.J. Keller. want to let you know as you file in, you're in the right place. We're going to get things going in about one minute. In, everyone filing in, in, Just letting you know as you do so, you're in the right place. This is the Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by J.J. Keller. Just going to allow attendees a little more time to get situated. We'll get things going in about 30 seconds from now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Preventing and Addressing Sexual Harassment, Understanding the Law and Avoiding Liability, sponsored by J.J. Keller. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and we we'll be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start a presentation, but first, let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own, and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product or publication does not necessarily mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question and click the send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. We'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Judy Kneisel and Terry, Do- Terry Doherty, who both serve as editor of Human Resources at J.J. Keller. Judy conducts research and creates content on a variety of HR-related topics, including labor law posters. She specializes in issues including recruiting and hiring, onboarding and training, team building, employee retention, and labor relations. Additionally, Judy edits the Essentials of Employee Relations manual. Terry specializes in information on employment law posters, drug testing, wellness, and the Family and Medical Leave Act. She oversees the editorial content of J.J. Keller's Employment Law Poster Line and also is editor of the Living Right Health and Wellness Awareness Program. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Judy, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away.
1: All right, thank you so much. Thanks to everyone for being here today. Today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller Training. JJ Keller Training Solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, such as training on demand, DVD, streaming video, and video books, all to help you meet your needs. Backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. So on behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. Now we want to welcome you again and thank you for joining us for our discussion of sexual harassment. We're going to start today by talking about where the lines are drawn between employees being rude and employees being offensive and employees actually harassing one another. We'll also talk about when you should get involved and how you should respond. And I just wanna mention that we've seen a lot of changes in the workplace in the last couple of years, including a shift to a lot of work from home situations. And while you might assume otherwise, those changes didn't make harassment disappear. Wherever your employees are reporting from, perhaps even more important than reacting to harassment is preventing it in the first place. So we'll talk about how you can do that, including the requirements for training for your supervisors and employees. But first, we want to take a poll and find out your motivation for being here today for this presentation. So what is your primary motivation for wanting to learn more about the topic of sexual harassment in the workplace? Do you want to avoid costly litigation? Is that your primary motivation? Do you want to reduce the cost of lost productivity and employee turnover caused by sexual harassment? Or do you want to make the workplace a safe and secure place where no one suffers the mental anxiety of being harassed or witnessing harassment? Or is your answer all of the above you hope to do you're interested in doing all of those things that I just mentioned? All right. We'll give you a couple more seconds to vote, and then we will hopefully see the results. All right. Well, it's pretty evenly split between making the workplace safe and secure, and all of the above. So, is that what you uh, expected to see, Terry?
2: I was leaning toward all of the above. So I, that's <laughs> I, I do. I am uh, happy to see that that's in the majority. So that's sort of what. Yes, I, I was I was
1: rooting for yeah. all of the above because if if your only goal is to avoid costly litigation, that kind of tells me you don't
2: you don't really care. Right. You have to care about your workers, and right. we'll talk about that. Right, uh, I, I'm glad to see all of the above.
1: <laughs> all right, and moving on. Okay, so but many employers motivation is in stopping harassment is to keep legal liability at a minimum. Last year, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or the EEOC, received more than 5,500 charges alleging sexual harassment. Those charges resulted in $61.6 million in monetary penalties for employers, and while that's a fewer cases than in 2020 and the lowest number in more than a decade, we're pretty sure that decline had more to do with the temporary effects of the pandemic, um, the, the effect it had on the process of filing charges than with any sudden improvement in behavior.
2: And Judy, as we sort of mentioned during the poll, in addition to concerns over legal liability, you should also be concerned about the effects of sexual harassment on your employees. Victims of sexual harassment report serious negative impacts on their physical and emotional health. The worse the harassment is, the more severe the physical and emotional toll. Victims may suffer anxiety, depression, sleep disturbance, weight loss or gain, loss of appetite and headaches. Victims also report instances of post-traumatic stress disorder. And sexual harassment can also be financially devastating. Victims may try to avoid harassing behavior by taking leaves of absence, often without pay or using sick leave. They may even quit their jobs out of frustration. It's important to note that when an employee quits due to sexual harassment, it can be considered a constructive discharge, which essentially means that the employee had no choice but to resign and therefore was effectively terminated.
1: But it's not just the victims who suffer job turnover excessive use of sick leave and lost productivity can all occur when employees are harassed on the job so you can see how sexual harassment can cost your company even if you never end up in court so to help you avoid becoming part of those statistics and to keep you from suffering the negative repercussions in the workplace, the first thing we need to do is solidify the concept of what sexual harassment actually is. Now, like any other type of harassment, sexual harassment is a form of discrimination. To be illegal, harassment must be based on an individual's membership in a protected class. And obviously, sexual harassment is harassment based on sex. It can include unwelcome sexual advances or requests for sexual favors. It can certainly be physical, but verbal, sec- verbal remarks related to a person's sex could also constitute sexual harassment. Any of these behaviors could be considered sexual harassment if they interfere with an individual's employment performance to an unreasonable degree, or if they create intimidating, hostile, or offensive work environment. Sexual harassment can get complicated in the workplace, often because people have different ideas about what is offensive it's not uncommon for one employee to make what they think is a harmless joke or use a you know a cute nickname for someone but another employee can be offended
2: you know that reminds me of a case from last year where the main allegation was that a female employee received regular <clears throat> and unwelcome hugs in the workplace while men were not hugged
1: Right. In that case, the Ninth Circuit ruled that the case could go forward and sent it back to the lower court for trial. The employer in this case argued that the hugs were, quote, ordinary workplace socializing. But you can see how something that may not seem terribly offensive to one person could still be problematic. The fact that Different people will have different tolerances for offensive behavior, probably doesn't surprise you, but this concept makes illegal harassment a little difficult to identify. Some subjectivity is even evident in the law, which wants us to consider how a reasonable person would feel in a particular
2: situation. I'm glad you brought up the reasonable person concept, Judy, because that leads us not into the two main types of harassment we're going to cover. The reasonable person test that Judy mentioned comes in the first type of illegal harassment, which is called hostile work environment. As you can see on this slide, to establish a hostile work environment, the question is whether a reasonable person would find a particular environment intimidating, hostile, or abusive. There's a little more guidance for the consideration if you look at the beginning of the definition. You also want to think about whether the conduct was severe. If it wasn't severe, it could still be considered harassment if it happened very frequently or went on for a long time. The severity or the pervasiveness of conduct is what would make that reasonable person find the environment intimidating, hostile, or abusive. That means that one crude or off-color sex-based comment probably wouldn't be enough to create a hostile work environment, but if the comments were quite regular, you'd be more likely to be looking at a hostile work environment. As another example, one request for a date from one employee to another would not typically create a hostile work environment but if the employee continued to ask, even when it's made clear that the original request was unwelcome, the repeated requests could create or contribute to a hostile work environment. On the other hand, if the conduct is particularly severe, like inappropriate touching, for example, you wouldn't typically need more than one instance for the situation to be deemed a hostile work environment. Now, When you're determining if a hostile work environment exists, courts will typically consider these factors. So there there are things you should consider too. Obviously, we know that the conduct itself is important, but you'd also want to consider how often it happened, how many people were involved, and the status of the harasser. For instance, if a supervisor was creating a hostile work environment, That addition of the supervisor's status over an employee made more quickly lead to a hostile work environment, basically because of that power dynamic. And then the consideration of whether a reasonable person would consider the environment to be intimidating, hostile, or abusive is also going to depend on the number of people doing the harassing and the number of people being harassed.
1: Terry, the point you just made about the power dynamic between a supervisor and a subordinate actually moves us nicely into the other topic of harassment, the other type of harassment, quid pro quo, because an imbalance of power often comes into play with quid pro quo. So, quid pro quo literally means this for that. Essentially, this would be a situation where someone is required to put up with harassment to keep their job or to get a promotion, for example. In such a situation, a harasser is, by some means or another, saying, you tolerate my behavior or give me something I want and I'll give you X. Now here, X could be a good review a promotion, or it could even just be that the person is allowed to keep a job. This type of harassment may be a little easier to spot than a hostile work environment. As quid pro quo, um, as a quid pro quo example, let's say that an employee named Mary and Mary's supervisor have been having an affair for three years when Mary ended the affair, the supervisor demoted Mary and cut Mary's pay. Or maybe Mary's performance review was unjustly harsh after the affair ended. In either case, Mary may might bring a case of sexual harassment against the employer. You can see how a quid pro quo situation typically requires some level of authority from the harasser. They have to have something to hold over the victim's head for a quid pro quo to work. So with this type of harassment, a supervisor is often the harasser.
2: This idea of someone in authority asking for something in return for benefits and perks is an important distinction between the two types of harassment. With a hostile work environment, no level of authority is required. So a harasser could be pretty much anyone, including an employee's peer. The harasser could even be a subordinate or a non-employee, like a customer or contractor that comes up sometimes. A hostile work environment also doesn't usually involve any kind of tangible employment action. While quid pro quo, harassment usually does. There's usually some kind of threat of termination, demotion, or some other term of employment involved. That's why some people refer to quid pro quo situations as tangible employment action harassment. Before we move on to what you need to do about harassment, I wanted to stop and review some common misconceptions about harassment. First, while harassers are more likely to be male than female, women can be harassers and men can be victims. In fact, in 2021, men filed every one in six sexual harassment claims.
1: And along those same lines, harassment need not take place between opposite sex individuals. Men can sexually harass men and women can sexually harass women. For example, if your company has a construction crew and one of the male employees repeatedly ridicules another male employee for, say, not being masculine or tough enough, we already know that the conduct is based on sex on stereotypes of how a man should behave. So if the conduct is severe or pervasive enough, you could be looking at a hostile work environment in that situation.
2: Yes, that's a good point. And since we're talking about who must be involved, I'm going going to use the same example. And let's say this was going on, a male employee was making fun of another male employee based on sex. Now, even if the victim doesn't care, say the victim wasn't offended, there could be another employee who was offended by those comments. An individual doesn't have to be directly harassed to bring a claim of sexual harassment. So that third employee who only witnessed the harassing behavior could still have a claim.
1: Right. And taking it even further, conduct or comments don't have to actually be directed at anyone at all. To give an example, in a court case from the 11th Circuit, the only female employee in an office had to endure a daily barrage of sexually offensive language in her presence, although it was not specifically directed at her. She complained to one of her coworkers and to a branch manager, but the offensive language continued, so finally she quit her job. The court found that sex-specific language can be particularly offensive and degrading to a member of a protected class, even if the language isn't specifically directed at that member. The court also stated that the behavior against the female employee was severe and pervasive, so it qualified for a hostile work environment claim of sexual harassment. Now that you have some of the basics, here's another bit of a twist. Let's say that Mark and Betty, two of your employees, dated for about three years, but recently broke up. Since then, Mark has been calling Betty regularly during non-work hours to ask her to reconsider and go on a date. Though Betty has repeatedly turned Mark down and asked him to stop calling, the behavior continued. Betty brings this issue to you because Mark's actions make it uncomfortable for Betty to work with him. Do you, if this happened in your organization, what would you do? Well, your choices are on the slide. Would you do nothing because the situation didn't occur at work? Would you do nothing because the employees used to date, so it's not harassment? Or would you transfer Mark to get him away from Betty? Or maybe would you investigate the claim? Now, in this situation, there are two important points for you to consider. First, for this, for this situation to include harassment, conduct typically needs to be unwelcome. Betty had told Mark to stop calling, making it clear that his asking was unwelcome. The second point, which we haven't covered yet, is that harassment need not occur within the workplace to affect employees. Courts have observed that employers can be liable even when conduct takes place outside the workplace because it still has a tendency to permeate the workplace. That means that even though the situation between Mark and Betty didn't occur at work or during work time, you still have a duty to investigate and address the situation just as you would if it occurred at work. So D was the only correct answer there. Now, we can take the example of Betty and Mark one step further by considering that harassment doesn't even require a verbal exchange. Now that so many people are working remotely, it's important to know that a written exchange Could be enough to constitute harassment. And today it's not uncommon for employees to interact online. The situation we described between Betty and Mark could have easily occurred over email or via social media. Had Mark's unwelcome and repeated requests reached Betty via Facebook or email, your response should have been much the same. You should still take Betty's report seriously and investigate the complaint. We'll talk a bit more about policies later on in our presentation, but the expectations set forth in your harassment policy should also address employees online conduct employees should know that how they interact with coworkers online could become an issue in the workplace.
2: Now, in our examples, Mark and Betty were coworkers, but one thing that it's important to note is that courts have found that employers are almost always liable for the acts of their supervisors. Supervisors are representatives of your company, especially when harassment results in a tangible employment action. Let's take a quick look at Burlington versus Ehlers, a famous case in the sexual harassment realm. We are reaching way back to 1998 for this case, but it set the precedent for cases involving supervisors, so it's important to cover this one. First, to understand Ellerth, we'll need to revisit that term constructive discharge. A constructive discharge is when an employee ends up quitting as a direct result of harassment. The courts have considered constructive discharge to be an instance of tangible employment action. Basically, the employee had no choice but to quit, so the court would consider him or her to be terminated. Let's look at what happened in this case. Kimberly Ellerth was a female employee who quit after working as a salesperson for 15 months. She endured three incidents of harassment from her supervisor that could be construed to threaten her job, although she was actually promoted during her tenure. She never reported the harassment, even though the company had procedures for reporting it. Her suit against the company revolved around her quitting because of the harassment or constructive discharge. The question before the court was whether the employer could be held liable if it was never made aware of the supervisor's actions. The case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court which ultimately ruled that employers are vicariously liable for the actions of their supervisors even if no tangible employment action is taken against the employee in simple terms if a supervisor is the harasser or knows about the harassment then courts will assume that the company knew about it and should have responded now let's look let's talk about the affirmative defense This defense may be used if no tangible employment action was taken against the employee. In order to make this defense, the employer must meet two requirements. First, you must show that you took reasonable care to prevent the harassment in the first place, and that you took immediate steps to correct the harassment once you became aware of it. Second, you must show that the employee unreasonably failed to report the harassment, Here, you're going to need to be able to show that you had procedures in place for the employee to report the harassment and that you would have responded effectively, but the employee failed to take advantage of your procedures. Note that if in the past, your company didn't have effective responses to complaints or if it ignored claims, a court is more likely to think it was reasonable that an employee failed to report the harassment. Of course, that's bad news for you, if you were hoping to employ the affirmative defense. So we said that with the affirmative defense, you'd need to be able to show that you exercised reasonable care. And of course, there's a definition for reasonable care. There's, there are fundamental steps you need to take in order to exercise reasonable care. One, create a written sexual harassment policy and make sure you distribute it to all employees. This can of course be done via email. Also, train your employees, especially supervisors, on your policy and what sexual harassment looks like. Third, make sure you have a procedure in place for employees to report sexual harassment and that employees understand it. Have more than one reporting avenue in case the alleged harasser is ever an employee's direct supervisor. And finally, have all employees sign a statement that they have received the policy and training on sexual harassment, and keep the statement on file.
1: Terry just started getting us into what you can do to minimize your liability by having certain policies and processes in place. So now let's say you do recognize sexual harassment in your workplace. Again, your company isn't automatically liable, but if you don't do anything about it, your chances of legal liability rise significantly. Basically, the law says that employers are responsible for sexual harassment they know about or, and this is key, should have known about. And if you're a step ahead and you're a step ahead, if you understand the concepts and can recognize sexual harassment when it occurs. Now, from there, you have to know how to respond. And of course, your supervisors need to know how to respond too. So if you become aware of a possible hostile work environment or a quid pro quo situation, you should immediately conduct an investigation as part of your investigation get answers to the following questions that you see on your screen what was the nature of the conduct was it verbal physical or both did the victim indicate that it was unwelcome how severe was it how frequently did it occur was it physically threatening or humiliating did it interfere with the employee's work performance? Would a reasonable person consider the behavior offensive? Were there any witnesses or would anyone else have information? And by anyone else, I mean maybe the victim talked to a coworker about the harassment, and that person could offer a statement that supports the victim's story. Make sure you document the situation even if you conclude that there was no illegal harassment, that, that nothing illegal occurred. And even in the case of a very minor infraction that doesn't require a formal discipline, documenting everything can help you identify patterns down the road. Remember, something that didn't create a hostile work environment at first could contribute to one um, if similar conduct continues, so having the history will be really helpful. Now, if your investigation determines the harassment has occurred, then the next step is deciding how to correct the situation. First, you need to stop the harassment and stabilize the workplace. Any discipline should be proportional to the seriousness of the offense and effective at putting an end to the behavior. So, for example, if you have an employee who makes a tasteless joke, a verbal warning may be enough. On the other hand, if an employee inappropriately touches a coworker, something much more serious, maybe a suspension or even termination may be in order.
2: Judy, also keep in mind that you could still be liable if the harassment doesn't stop. That means that after you conduct an investigation, you'll need to continue monitoring the situation. If the conduct doesn't stop, for instance, if the jokester keeps telling inappropriate jokes, the discipline needs to be progressively more serious since the first round wasn't effective in stopping the harassment.
1: Right. Thanks for that, Terry. Yes, you do have to remember that the situation doesn't just end because you've completed your investigation. The other thing to keep in mind is that if your investigation uncovers that illegal harassment has occurred, you want to correct any effects on the victim. So, for example, if the individual individual was demoted, After refusing sexual advances from a supervisor, that employee should probably be restored to their previous position. Or say an employee was required to take leave after complaining of harassment. That employee should have that leave immediately restored at the conclusion of the investigation that supports the allegations. Now, how we just explained addressing sexual harassment is probably how you're used to hearing about it. Watch for harassment, and when you think it might be present, investigate immediately and act on your findings. And and we stand by this advice. You should absolutely respond to harassing behavior in your workplace with an investigation and whatever discipline you deem appropriate after determining what happened. But there's one pretty major problem. This approach taken alone is too reactive and not proactive enough. A few years ago, an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission task force on the study of harassment in the workplace concluded that many employers aren't really looking at harassment in the right way because they're waiting to address conduct until it crosses over into behavior that is actually
2: illegal. Right, and while you should absolutely step in when you identify harassing behavior in the legal sense of the word, your efforts should actually start well before that. Employees should know that uncivil or offensive behavior even well before the point that the conduct ventures into the world of sexual harassment is not acceptable in the workplace. Many employers have expressed concern that some workplace banter may come close to crossing the line into the realm of unlawful conduct. And we acknowledged earlier that this can be a fine line, sometimes laced with subjectivity. The difficulty of determining when exactly offensive behavior becomes unlawful is yet another reason it's important to take all complaints seriously and require professional behavior from employees. And if you're in the habit of not addressing offensive conduct, you may be creating the impression that such, accept- that such behavior is acceptable in the workplace. After all, if it's not being stopped, employees might think that they might as well go on with it. You can see how such behaviors can kind of gain momentum possibly leading to actual harassment issues in the future. Now it all comes down to prevention. Teach your employees how to be helpful, but helpful bystanders and respond to sexual harassment quickly and appropriately. In fact, JJ Keller offers a unique training on sexual harassment prevention. This program can be easily customized to meet state requirements, and it's available in DVD, video training book, online course, and pay-per-view formats. Now, if you're interested in this, please respond to our poll. Actually, we have hundreds of other training topics as well. So if you're interested in any type of training topic, go ahead, let us know by using the poll on your screen. As a thank you, we'll email you a fantastic white paper Judy has put together called Sexual Harassment, Three Tips for Effective Training. So go ahead and take the poll, and we will also see if there's a few questions that came in um, that people want to talk about while you're taking that poll. I'm not seeing any questions yet, actually, so please, I guess this is a good time to remind everyone, please go ahead and enter your questions in the Q&A box because we we will have a few minutes at the end to take care of your questions. Okay, go ahead and indicate your response on the poll. And then we're going to talk a little bit about training. Oh, a question about our trainings. Are they available in Spanish? Some are. Yes, they are. The the sexual (laughs) harassment training
1: is definitely available in Spanish. um, And many of the other titles are too. So that's a great question.
2: Thanks for asking. All right. All right. Now, well, let's talk a little bit about more about training now. And go into what the EEOC says about preventing sexual harassment and training. The goal here is rather than just to respond to sexual harassment, the the ultimate goal is to prevent it. And that does require a total shift in a company's culture. That has to come from the top down. One tactic the task force offered as a possible benefit to employers is civility training. This type of training is meant to promote respect between employees. Civility training is not focused specifically on harassment prevention, but rather creating a more respectful environment overall, which should lead to less conflict and fewer incidents of harassment in the workplace. Research has shown that incivility is typically a precursor to harassment. In contrast to typical anti-harassment training, civility training tends to give people positive examples of how to behave, rather than highlighting behaviors they should avoid. The training typically includes a focus on interpersonal communication, conflict resolution, and effective supervisory techniques. Another avenue suggested by the EEOC's task force is bystander intervention training which is a violence prevention strategy. We touched on this a little bit earlier. As the name implies, bystander intervention training encourages people who witness potentially harassing situations to step in and defuse them. Bystander intervention training is being used more and more in colleges and high schools to prevent violence and sexual assault. The concept involves at least four strategies. First, help bystanders recognize potentially problematic behaviors, thereby creating awareness. Second, create a sense of collective responsibility by motivating bystanders to step in and take action when they observe problematic behaviors. Third, empower bystanders by building their skills and giving them the confidence necessary to intervene as appropriate. And and finally, provide bystanders with resources they can call upon and that support their intervention.
1: These are just two types of training recommended by the EEOC's task force that are not necessarily substitutes for specific sexual harassment training, though. Remember, bystander intervention training and civility training aren't subject-specific. They're more about teaching employees how to behave in general, which can ultimately prevent sexual harassment. Still, employees do need to understand what kinds of behaviors are and are not allowed specific to sexual harassment. And in a few states, which um, if you're from any of these states, Mm -hmm. listen up, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Maine, and New York. In those states, training specific to sexual harassment is actually required by law. And while these laws vary slightly from state to state, um, from a general standpoint, they require employers to review the federal and state provisions prohibiting sexual harassment, to, to distinguish it from other types of harassment, and to provide examples of sexual harassment and how to prevent it. And these states generally require the training to include specifics on how to report sexual harassment. Now, if you're not in California, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Maine, or New York, sexual harassment training may not be required by law, but of course that does not mean you should skip it. The EEOC's task force noted that individuals who receive training are more likely to tell their employers about harassment. Training should do many of the things that those states we just mentioned required require of employers. Now, don't panic if you didn't catch all the elements we just listed. We're going to slow down and go over each of them specifically and how you can best present them in your training. One of the most important elements of training is to communicate your company's position on harassment in the workplace. You'll want to make sure that all employees understand that your company strongly disapproves of this type of conduct. And of course, it's best if this stance is reflected from the top down in your company's culture. You'll also want to let employees know what the consequences could be depending on the severity of the conduct. Now, Terry, you and I were talking about the advisability of zero tolerance policies. And I think we agree that although they might sound good, They're not the best idea.
2: Yeah, a lot of companies do elect to to communicate zero tolerance policy like workplace violence and sexual harassment. But the EEOC's task force has concern that such a communication might actually discourage employees from reporting behavior. The task force says that employees may interpret such a policy to mean that any offenders could be treated equally harshly regardless of the seriousness of the offense. If an employee believes that a coworker's crude joke may get him or her fired, rather than simply reprimanded or reminded of a policy, the employee is less likely to report it, which gives your company less of an opportunity to step in before the conduct rises to the level of illegal harassment.
1: Yes, definitely something to consider if zero tolerance has been your policy, um, your strategy in the past. It's not that you should allow offensive conduct and harassment, but you want to be careful about how you explain your position. Back to the contents of your training now, another element is obviously going to be an explanation of what sexual harassment is. State and federal definitions regarding sexual harassment are fundamental, but they have to be coupled with careful explanations and examples, and those examples have to be relevant. They should be situations that may actually occur in your workplace. We talked about the EEOC's suggestions of conducting preventative type trainings, such as bystander intervention and civility training. So you already know that it's good to put an effort towards stopping offensive behavior before it ventures into illegal harassment. That also means you don't wanna wait around, excuse me, and act only on situations in the workplace that actually arise to the level of illegal harassment and you don't wanna train employees only to help them avoid actual harassment. Think about all the inappropriate behaviors you wish to prohibit and provide examples of those in your training to illustrate what is unacceptable. Be clear that no matter how innocent something may have been intended to be, it can still be inappropriate and unacceptable in the workplace. It matters as much, if not more, how behavior is received compared to how it is intended. Again, examples are key here. It shouldn't be difficult to come up with examples of something that could happen in your workplace and might offend one person, but not another. Training should also outline your reporting procedure if an an individual is a victim or witness of sexual harassment. In case the harasser is an employee's direct supervisor, we've hinted at this already, but it bears repeating. Training should outline multiple, multiple points of contact for employees to report harassment. To fail to do so may give an employee a Defense for not reporting harassment, which is obviously something you don't want. Throughout your training, employees should be reminded that the company takes allegations seriously and that employees will not experience retaliation for making a complaint. They should also understand that the employer will keep information surrounding sexual harassment as confidential as possible while still acknowledging that there may be situations in which total confidentiality
2: isn't possible. Now, if you conduct separate training for managers and supervisors, a key component is that they understand how to receive and proceed with sexual harassment complaints. First, supervisors should know how serious it is that they handle harassment complaints efficiently, in part because if they don't, your company can be on the hook, as if it knew about sexual harassment in the workplace but didn't address it. Second, they need to understand how to treat employees with respect throughout the complaint process and provide confidentiality where possible. Role-playing exercises on things like receiving a complaint, Interviewing victims and witnesses and implementing discipline and outlining future expectations can be really helpful for supervisors. Just giving them examples of language to use and to avoid can give supervisors a leg up on handling such a situation appropriately and effectively. Your supervisor's success in handling these complaints is a really big deal, one mishandled situation, and your employees will be less likely to report what they experience and witness in the future, which again leaves you less able to address situations before they escalate into illegal harassment. Another paramount piece of training for supervisors is understanding the concept of retaliation and being conscious of even the perception of it. In a nutshell, retaliation charges assert that an employer took an action against an employee in some way for making or supporting a claim of discrimination. In 2021, 56% of charges made with the EEOC included an element of retaliation. Remember, even if you handle a sexual harassment charge properly and you limit your liability in that area, if a supervisor retaliates and against an employee for reporting sexual harassment, your liability starts all over again. Retaliation is a risk, even if an employee's report of sexual harassment didn't rise to the level of being illegal. Examples within your training for supervisors can be really helpful. A lot of times supervisors don't realize the kind of behaviors that might be exhibited. They might be exhibiting that could be perceived as retaliation. Excluding an employee or treating someone differently because they are a troublemaker or even labeling someone as sensitive can be the beginnings of a retaliation claim under the right circumstances. Supervisors need to understand that any employment action taken after an employee complains of harassment could potentially form the basis of a retaliation claim. So it's tricky, and you have to watch for the possible perception of retaliation. But it's good news for employers that employees who report harassment are not immune to legitimate discipline. Now, it, for example, if an employee, excuse me, when it, if an employee is harassed by her manager but the man, the employee's work is unsatisfactory and then the the harassment is reported and then the manager is disciplined then the employee's claim of discrimination may not hold
1: Right. It's important to make sure that employees believe that retaliation will not occur. According to the EEOC, only one in four cases of workplace harassment are actually reported. If reporting is that uncommon in your workplace, you can see how you're going to have a hard time in both creating a positive environment and avoiding legal liability for harassment claims. The EEOC's task force found that for employees to report harassment and offensive behavior, employees have to have 100% trust in the employer's system. They have to understand what will occur how a complaint is received, how an investigation will work, and they have to really believe that the company will treat them with respect at all times and that no retaliation will occur. Now, perhaps most importantly, employees have to feel respected in the workplace for prevention efforts to work. The task force found that a direct co- they found a direct correlation between the respect given to employees and the employer's ability to identify and stop harassment. Unfortunately, it's really, really easy to undermine that respect. It only takes one employee being treated poorly in conjunction with reporting sexual harassment or offensive behavior, because once that word gets around, the next employee and the next and the next may not report anything at all, and then you don't have the chance to stop harassment at its roots. You can see how training cannot be approached as a rote exercise to be in order to be an effective component of sexual harassment prevention. It has to be one component in a whole culture devoted to making sure that all employees are treated with respect. But one way you can make sure your training is more effective is to have your employees evaluate it. You could do this immediately after, but you might wanna try um, to make your inquiries a few months after the training. Then you can ask your employees what they remember and what they're not clear about. And you can also ask them if they've noticed that behaviors have changed in the workplace. Or you might find that they're noticing more negative behavior now that you've defined what it is, what is and isn't acceptable. Maybe there are maybe there are things they didn't know were were unacceptable before all this feedback can help you determine where you might need to tweak your training and whether you might need to start thinking about a refresher course
2: down the road. We've mentioned the importance of a strong sexual harassment policy throughout our presentation today. So let's go over the elements that should be included. The policy should include possible consequences for being a harasser, a clear definition of sexual harassment and other behaviors that are prohibited, and a statement that retaliation won't be tolerated. In addition, it should encourage employees or even communicate that it's an expectation that they report any sexual harassment and or offensive behavior they witness or experience. Even a comprehensive policy won't be effective if it can't be understood by everyone. Consider whether you need to provide copies in other languages. This might go for training as well, as we mentioned earlier.
1: Preventing harassment of any kind in the workplace is one of those things where you really have to do the work of creating a positive culture. And when that doesn't work, be willing to have uncomfortable conversations when situations merit them. A lot of companies have nice sounding value statements, but, you know, that's not the hard part. What's really valued at a company or the actual company values are the ones you're willing to act on which are shown by who gets rewarded, promoted or let go. If you focus on doing the tough work to create the culture you want, highlighting actual values, you will have done a lot more of that prevention we've been talking about, which will require a lot less attention to avoiding the legal liability in the long run. Now we know we've covered a lot of ground here today, and we hope that you found it very helpful. Um, we're gonna try to get to a few questions before we run out of time, but first we'd like to offer all of you attendees another opportunity to request more information on our training solutions. Whether you're looking for training topics on sexual harassment or um any other topic that we have training on our our JJ Keller training delivers we have hundreds of online training courses and pay-per-view streaming courses so we will let you um answer the poll um we'll leave that up for a little bit and um when you inquire about JJ Keller training today, we're going to mail you a digital, email you a digital copy of our white paper on sexual harassment training. So that'll review a little bit um, of the stuff we went over today. Um, we I know we threw a lot at you. So um, if you want another source for information on sexual harassment training, go ahead and get that white paper and you can look that over whenever you have time to be refreshed on this on this stuff. All right. Um, and I guess I we'll see if any questions have come in today.
0: Yes, no, excellent. Great job, Judy and Terry. Thanks for sharing your insights and expertise. Before we do get started with the Q&A, just wanna remind everyone about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. and Your input is very important to us as it helps us improve our future webcasts. Uh, I've seen some more questions coming in, as I'm sure the two of you have, but again, if you would like to ask one, just click that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Um, with that, we will get to some questions. Um, the first one asks, it gives a, for instance, could you talk about sexual harassment and ADA in a case where an employee says because of a disability they're unaware of the verbiage coming out of the mouth is offensive.
1: Oh,
2: that's interesting. I mm-hmm. don't know. If I-, <laughs> I think that's more of an ADA question. You need to go through the interactive process with that employee. Is there an, is there an effective accommodation for that disability?
1: Right.
2: Is the the, the you're, you're going to want to see um, uh, what what does the employee think? Well, how can the employee handle that? Uh, you know, what would the employee suggest? If, if if this is a problem for other employees, you sort of have to take the temperature of the workplace. And how is that affecting your workplace specifically? What does the employee say? Well, this is what I could do. And then you can think, well, here are some other ideas. The job accommodations network has great, great accommodation.
1: That's what I was going to, to recommend yeah. too. I, yeah, hate to, I hate to refer you to away from us, but um, is it. Mm-hmm. Com?
2: org. I
1: believe. .org is the Job Accommodation Network and they answer any question you can think about regarding ADA. But I would say, yeah, you might have to go through the interactive process um, and see if accommodations can be made. And it may just come down again to that, trying to create a more respectful workplace Mm
0: -hmm. next one what can an hr manager do if when interviewing an employee who is making an accusation the person is not open to discussing anything and just denies the allegation outright
1: Um, are you I guess I'm not sure if the person making the act, the accusation is refusing to comment further or the person being accused. Um, well, Indeed I mean- The person
0: being accused.
1: Okay. Um, I guess you would, you know, as we always say, document, 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 you know, be sure you document everything and then maybe ch- ask the person Uh, doing the accusing if there's anybody else who can shed any light on the situation if there were any bystanders or witnesses or um, anybody else you can you can try to have back up what they're saying I mean and if you and if you can't find you know if there is no evidence um, just keep a record of this accusation and, and your findings, because like we said earlier, you know, patterns might, may become clear later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might, this, this may come around again, and then you'll have, you know, you'll have the documentation. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, as we, we wind down, I know, as you indicated, we have covered quite a bit of ground, but any, anything left unsaid from either of you?
1: um I don't know I guess I would just like to you know stress that respectful workplaces um part of the whole program you know it's kind of the take care of the little things before they turn into big things and promote um an environment of respect you know at at all levels
2: yeah that's key at all levels make sure supervisors are respectful of their, the employees, employees are respectful of each other, civility, respect in the workplace is really key to, to prevention.
0: Well, thank you. Unfortunately, we have run out of time today. Sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. Once again, we hope that you take the time to fill out the forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Judy Kneisel. Terry Doherty, everyone at J.J. Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.